0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Program, which organized tonight's event. Um, It's my great pleasure to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco and our radio and online audiences. Uh, It's also my great pleasure to introduce my friend, Peter Dale Scott, who has been here uh, many times before and is very well known in San Francisco and throughout the nation. We planned this a while back um, after we did the, the last panel um, to speak on a topic, and I, I, we ended up timing it to be just before his birthday. So Peter Dale Scott speaking about the need for both being uh, radical about how you solve problems and conservative about what's, what's working in a democratic society. Because it's often when you end up talking about everything that's going wrong, forget that parts of it actually work. So Peter, thanks a lot for coming.
2: Thank you, George. And thanks to all of you for coming out tonight. Um, And there's so many other things one can do in San Francisco. Uh, The title that uh, we negotiated, it took about a month to get it right, is Today's Great Need, Radical Politics, Conservative Culture. Two years ago... On a Commonwealth Club panel about Enlightenment values, I happened to mention casually that I considered myself a radical conservative. George Hammond, the polymath organizer of these events, (laughs) approached me later and suggested that I give a talk on that topic. And I replied, well, I'd like to give a talk, but about America and not about myself. Now, however, two years later, I do want to talk about the paradoxical doubleness of being a radical conservative, a doubleness I believe to be present not just in myself, but in all thoughtful persons. I hope that by accepting this paradox in ourselves, we all can see more clearly how to help diminish the divisiveness that is one of this country's greatest present dangers. Jared Diamond, in his new book, Upheaval, agrees that the greatest and most ominous, this is a quote, of the the fundamental problems now threatening democracy is our accelerating deterioration of political compromise. And I realize that being just two days short of 91... I have to use my glasses. <laughs> I was hoping not, but can't. Well, anyway. Those of you who know my writings may think of me as a critic of America, not as a defender of it. But the truth is that I have always been a conservative defender of American culture. As well as a radical critic of American politics. It is precisely because there is so much to cherish in this country that attention to its defects is possible, normal, and important. This was and remains America's greatest strength. One reason the communist governments of Eastern Europe were doomed to fail was their inability to foster and respond to movements for constructive change. That is still China's great problem today. At the base of today's hatred is political fear. And the first step towards reducing this political fear is to recognize America's exceptional social and moral strengths, including its proven strengths, in responding to its admittedly great problems. But most of current opinion shapers, including those on cable TV I most listen to myself, are not calming those fears. They are intensifying them. Here is a not atypical headline I saw last month on a political website speaking of Senator McConnell's announced intention to coordinate his tactics on impeachment with the White House. And here's the headline. We're witnessing the death of the democratic process right before our eyes. It's pretty typical, actually. Well, I'm old enough to remember the McCarthy era in the 1950s and how America then shivered in what Justice William Douglas then called a, quote, black silence of fear. My memory tells me that similar fears were voiced at the time of Watergate in the 1970s. So let me for a moment match this extreme pessimism with a minute or two of undiluted optimism. Let me talk first about the global impact of the American Revolution Namely, the constitutional establishment of the rule of law. Many Americans are reluctant to speak of American exceptionalism, but it's very easy for me because I am a Canadian. (laughs) And as I wrote in the American Deep State, and here I'm quoting myself now, I believe in American exceptionalism and that at one time America was truly exceptional in its unprecedented replacement of authoritarian with limited constitutional government. I see the American Revolution as a pivotal moment, not just in American history, but in the history of Europe and ultimately the world. It was a milestone in the consolidation of the principle, now widely accepted, that we should be ruled by laws and not by men, not even by women. This builds on a principle codified in Rome and later strengthened by the so-called Glorious Revolution of 1688 in England. The Founding Fathers were mindful of this principle when, after serious debate, they added an impeachment clause to the American Constitution. The language they used was taken from English law, but with a major difference. Judges in England could be impeached, but not the king, for the English sovereign was regarded as a source and not subject of the law, following the Roman rule established by Opion in the 3rd century, quod principi placuit legis habet victim," whatever pleases the ruler has the force of law. The American Constitution was the world's first complete written national constitution. Today, since World War II, almost all democratic governments now have written constitutions. For whatever it's worth, even undemocratic (laughs) nations like Russia, China, yes, and North Korea also have written constitutions. But the American Revolution gave the world, in addition to the rule of law, a dream of liberation. Unlike Chinese and Judaic law, American legal theories distinguishes between law and morality. But having done this, and here's a quote from a that law textbook, the legal positivist quest for a value-free account of law is countered by the naturalist, more plausible claim that this account neglects the very essence of law, its morality, that the act of positing law can and should be guided by moral principles. Thus, law in America has not been static, but over the years has struggled towards narrowing the gap between what law is and what it should be. For the American Revolution gave the world more than institutions, it also helped consolidate an age-old dream of liberation. Rousseau's Man is Born Free, Yet Everywhere He Is in Chains was answered by the opening of the Declaration of Independence, All, which you know, but as a Canadian I have to remind myself. All men are endowed with the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This noble ideal was echoed briefly in the Declaration of Human Rights of the failed French Revolution. It was echoed more permanently in the poetry of Friedrich Schiller. Almost literally in his drama of liberation, Wilhelm Tell, and also in his Ode to Joy that Beethoven set to music in his ninth century. Joy, a spark of heaven, daughter from Elysium, all men will emerge as brothers where you rest your gentle wings. The spark of fire taken from the American Revolution and Schiller ignited the movement of young Europe with its visions of democratic unity. That movement was defeated in the People's Spring of 1848, but led to the collapse of Europe's three continental empires after the First World War, and it eventually contributed after the Second World War to what we now know as the European Union. These two gifts of the American Revolution, the sovereignty of law and the dream of liberty, vitalize each other. Where an equilibrium between them is not established, as in the French and Soviet revolutions, the results can be both disastrous and ephemeral. And for those of us fortunate enough to benefit from this equilibrium, I suggest that it is incumbent on us to foster it, conserving the one, radically pursuing the other. But to these two elements of the American Revolution, we must add a third element, just as important but far less recognized. I am referring to the collective social process which produced the Revolution and was strengthened by it. Many historians... And more ominously, many militia movements regard the revolution as a successful war against England. But this focus on violence rather than ideas and persuasion was energetically rejected by John Adams in a letter which he wrote in 1815 to Thomas Jefferson. I'm always quoting when I do this. What do we mean by the revolution? The war? That was no part of the revolution. It was only an effect and consequence of it. The revolution was in the minds of the people. And this was effected from 1760 to 1775 in the course of 15 years before a drop of blood was drawn at Lexington. Adams then explained that he was referring to the steps by which the public opinion was enlightened and informed concerning the authority of Parliament over the colonies. In my book, The Road to 9-11, following Jonathan Schell's masterful work, The Unconquerable World, I paired this quote with a very long one from Adam Michnik, who was a leader of the Solidarity Movement, which successfully and non-violently expelled the world's largest army from Poland less than 40 years ago. Asking how Poland's peaceful transformation from the Soviet Union was possible, Michnik explained it was preceded by an almost two-decade effort to build institutions of civil society. Scholarly histories, working with the hard evidence of documents, once tended to focus much more about problems of leadership from the top down than about responses in civil society from the bottom up. In college, I was required to read The Anatomy of Revolution by Harvard professor Crane Britton. Did anyone else have to read that book in, in university? It's still in print still being taught. Uh, In what was very much a top-down perspective, Britain looked at the similarities between four revolutions, the English of the 1640s, the American, the French, and the Russian. And in all four, Britain summarized the revolutionary process as moving from financial breakdown, to organization of the discontented, to remedy this breakdown, revolutionary demands on the part of those disorganized, discontented, demand, which which, if granted would mean the virtual abdication of those governing. But the spirit of the American Revolution, as John Adams observed, was born before the financial crisis that produced the Stamp Act of 1765. Even the development he wrote of, of an improbable political consensus between Puritans and slave owners, was not the first step. That consensus has since been attributed by historians to an earlier and even more universal social development the first great religious awakening of the 1730s and the 1740s. Now bear with me, this is the longest quote in the whole talk, but it's really, I think, important to understand the energy which produced something as miraculous as the American Revolution. So here begins the quote. I'm not even going to hold my hands up until the end. (laughs) Along with anti-authoritarian principles... The First Great Awakening fostered strong millennial hopes across the entirety of the colonies. Seeing themselves as actors on the stage of salvation history, revivalists understood themselves to be playing a pivotal role in bringing about the second coming of Christ. Jonathan Edwards was optimistic that the revivals were the dawning of God's final plans for the earth a defining moment for America within salvation history. Likewise, the Reverend Josiah Smith boasted in a sermon in 1740 from Charleston, South Carolina, Behold, some great thing seemed to be upon the anvil, some big prophecy at the birth. God give it strength to bring it forth. Close quote. This tide of a millennial excitement was of course not an american innovation on the contrary similar outbursts had periodically energized european history for 2000 years but it importantly created a widespread expectation among americans for necessary and inevitable change as i wrote in the wrote my book the road to 911 i'm quoting me again in the background of both revolutions, the American and the Polish, lies the emergence of Western civilization from one of the most successful of all alternative civil societies, the early Christian church. These two revolutions were moments in the fundamental process of civilization itself, as envisaged as envisioned by Hannah Arendt and Jonathan Schell, a process of moving from mere force of violence towards institutionalized powers of persuasion. What was new in the American and Polish revolutions, and is still inspiring, was the conversion of social dreams into movements that could defeat the mercenary armies of the king in 1783 and the Soviet Union in 1989. Speaking of Buyak, another Solidarity leader, once said publicly, the American ideals of human rights are exactly the same as those of Solidarity. And what was true of the American Revolution was also true of the abolition of slavery. The abolitionist movement was abetted in large part by the widespread moral fervor of the Second second Great Awakening, roughly 1790 to the 1840s. This social movement set in motion the dynamics of a political response, first the new Republican Party, then the Civil War, and finally emancipation. Well, Great Awakenings by that name are no longer fashionable, but the great social momentum of the revolution and abolitionism has survived. It's never gone away. It has spilled over into later related movements, such as women's suffrage, successful in 1980, and prohibition, successful only from 1920 to 1933. Here's a very important quote. As Professor Barry Hankins has observed, typically from the second great awakening to the present, when Americans see a social problem, their impulse is to band together in a voluntary society and fix it. And that's really, I think, I've lived in many countries, and that really does, I think, distinguish particularly America from, say, Europe or or Asia. It's We sort of take it for granted here, but it isn't something that you can take for granted globally at all. This dynamic momentum is an invaluable social asset. It is needed today, and fortunately, it is still very much with us. I suspect many people here were either witnesses to or participants in the civil rights movement, which was initially a product of the black churches that grew out of the Second Great Awakening. From that movement soon emerged what became the nationwide anti-Vietnam War movement with churches, both black and white, playing a significant role in both. Now, in presenting you with this rosy summary of America's history, I'm, of course, omitting a great deal. (laughs) I have focused uniquely on the achievements in the messy context of politics of what might be called faith hope, and an altruistic love of humanity. The importance of what might loosely be called these conservative values, shared in America by both theists and atheists, can be seen by the contrast in 1968 between two radical protest movements, the ultimately successful anti-war movement in America and the failed Paris uprising in France the anti-war movement was largely in support of traditional values. A lot of us quoted Washington at that time. While the ideology of the Paris uprising was essentially nihilist, as expressed by its slogan, Il est interdit d'interdire, it is forbidden to forbid. Of course, this cursory account of U.S. history is very one-sided. We are all very aware that American politics are energized by fear and hatred as well as by hope and love. Indeed, if we turn our eyes to the current political brawl in Congress and the media, it might seem that in recent years, fear and hate have become the predominating forces. Democrats argue with conviction that they have no choice but to impeach the president because failure to do so might deal a fatal blow to America's system of constitutional checks and balances. Republicans, on the other hand, say that conviction of this president might set a precedent that effectively converted America from a presidential to a parliamentary system of government. And if we look only at the political factors in this decision, both of these antithetical arguments paradoxically, have merit. But to see this leads directly to the main point I want to make this evening. As a first step to healing this country, we must stop focusing too narrowly on day-to-day political issues and think instead of larger and more urgent ones. The Founding Fathers wanted limited government. They got it. And along with limited government, they got limited politics. But the great strength of America is its social culture, of which its political culture is only a little part, actually a constitutionally limited part. So let me paraphrase Franklin Roosevelt and say, as a first step, stop being so fearful. The first thing we have to fear is political fear itself. The American political scene today, which is being called everything from a madhouse to a cesspool, is indeed increasingly dominated by fear and hatred. And unfortunately, this is true not just of those in Congress, but also of those in the media, especially with the rise of cable TV stations and their separate siloed audiences in their separate siloed realities. But fear and hatred have repeatedly dominated American politics, going back at least to the presidency of John Adams. This was a period of suspicion that the French were meddling in U.S. domestic politics, including a rumor, which quite possibly was true, that a Frenchman had helped foment the Virginian slave rope, the Virginian slave revolt of 1800. Finally, John Adams, sick and tired of being accused of treason by Jeffersonians, persuaded the Federalist Congress to pass the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798. The Alien Friends Acts temporarily allowed the president to imprison and deport non-citizens who were deemed dangerous the Sedition Act criminalized making false statements that were critical of the federal government. The Jeffersonian journalist James Callender, after calling Adams a, quote, repulsive pedant, a gross hypocrite, and an unprincipled oppressor, was (laughs) fined and sentenced to nine months in jail. After such rhetoric and retaliation, one might have thought that comity and consensus might never be recovered in American politics. But the two acts in question expired after Thomas Jefferson and his Democratic-Republican Party were stepped into power in 1800. The American political process staggered on, even after the killing of Hamilton in 1804. And, as we saw, Adams and Jefferson, when both were retired, And with adequate distance between them, engaged for two more decades in the most elegant epistolary friendship in American history. The debates in Congress leading up to the Civil War were no less vitriolic. In Puritanical Boston, the abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison publicly burned a copy of the U.S. Constitution, which then contained provisions for slavery. Earlier, at an anti-slavery meeting, a lynch mob dragged him through the streets by a rope and threatened to kill him. A Senator Charles Sumner, an abolitionist from Massachusetts, was beaten almost to death on the Senate floor. It's not as bad as that now, really. By a (laughs) pro-slavery congressman from South Carolina. The hostilities of the ensuing Civil War, with over 600,000 deaths, took over a decade to abate. But in 1876, an impasse in the Electoral College led to a dubious quid pro quo. Southern Democrats agreed to the election of a Republican, Rutherford Hayes, as president. The Republicans, in exchange, agreed to withdraw federal troops from the South. This ended Reconstruction and condemned blacks to another century of oppression under Jim Crow laws. The deal was very ugly, but it did achieve a consensus. In other words, our present crisis of disunity is not at all unprecedented. On the contrary, it is just one more eruption from a deep magma of divisions that have always been in this country and have always resulted in ugly compromises think of the last great division in this country in the 1960s and 1970s. I don't want to sound complacent for a moment about the recent rise in mass shootings, but think back to 1968 when the assassination of Martin Luther King led to major rioting and arson in 110 cities and the biggest domestic deployment of the U.S. Army since the Civil War. A year before that, in 1967, there were uprisings and riots in over 150 cities, with at least 83 people dead and the National Guard deployed in at least 12 states. Yet, by the 1980s, America was relatively calm. How did this happen? Jared Diamond points to the political relationship between Republican President Reagan and Democratic House Speaker Tip O'Neill. Again, a long quote. Both men were skilled politicians, strong personalities, and opposite to each other in their political philosophies and in many or most questions of of policy. Nevertheless, they treated each other with respect, acknowledged each other's constitutional authority, and played by the rules, end of quote. What Diamond points to is both true and important, yet Reagan's political change from his earlier firebrand rhetoric when running for the governorship of California in the 1960s exemplifies for me a still greater social truth. Both Reagan and O'Neill were indeed skilled politicians, and from this skill both knew that the mood of the nation had changed. By the 1980s, the people, as I did myself, now wanted reconciliation, not yet another decade of conflict. And I feel reasonably sure that that mood is already growing in the country today. The dialectics of that change back then are instructive. During Reagan's 1966 campaign to become governor of California, Many, like myself on the left, thought of him, as many think today, of Trump, as a vulgar TV personality exploiting fear and prejudice to defeat the forces of sanity. And early in his campaign, he did say, quote, If you ask me, the activities of those Vietnam Day teaching people can be summed up in three words. You probably know the three words. Sex, drugs, and treason but i failed to then to see how the anti-war movement with its slogan of never trust anyone over 30 was already not as sane as i then wanted to think and by the end of his campaign reagan had pulled away from fully endorsing the slogan sex drugs and treason his speeches now reflected a growing mood in the country his statements like Morality is the main issue of the campaign. In other words, it it was the social conditions which determined where the country was going to go, and the politicians, as they should, followed but did not really inspire the change. And that, that is so relevant, I think, to what's happening now. It's going to come from the people, a change in mood. In other words the initial morality of the anti-war movement soon increasingly veering into violence was now being opposed by a rising counter-morality our situation today with the evangelical churches now divided over trump is not dissimilar these anecdotal glimpses of us history support my belief that for democracy is to work government is important but even more important is inspiration and guidance from an essentially healthy electorate. Democracy is an interactional system. Leaders give direction to the system from above, especially when complex solutions are called for. But on big, simple issues, leadership usually comes from below. Never from the entire people, Rousseau's dangerous myth of the general will, but from those committed people in society, always a minority who from their convictions are energetically united in a strong moral cause. These people of dedication are at first usually opposed both by those in authority and also by the people at large. In 1970, for example, when four students were shot and killed by the National Guard at Kent State University, campuses immediately erupted in protest across the entire nation. At the time, a majority of Americans approved of the shooting. They thought the guard was right and the students were wrong. Only a few years later, public opinion would change. In taking a lead from what Adams wrote to Jefferson, we can say that the greatness of America has always come chiefly from below And a solution to our present crisis will most likely come yet again from below. Now, movements from below are not always right, for intensity of belief does not bestow infallibility. Especially in America, there have been any number of divisive issues, such as the abortion issue, with decent people of good faith on both sides. Another such issue was prohibition and Prohibition's failure to produce consensus soon led to its repeal. But today, nearly all dedicated people are united behind one cause to deal with climate change. The science behind the call for change is no longer seriously debatable. Last November, more than 11,000 scientists from around the world declared clearly and unequivocally that planet earth is facing a climate emergency they called for an immense scale of immense increase of scale in endeavors to avoid untold suffering and this is more quote from the scientists especially worrisome are potential irreversible climate tipping points and nature's reinforcing feedbacks that could lead us to a catastrophic ha- hothouse earth well beyond the control of humans. So in other words, they're a bit more concerned than most politicians, even those who say that they agree that climate change is an issue. If America truly were a functioning democracy, those endeavors would now be being implemented According to the New York Times, Americans overwhelmingly believe that global warming is happening and that carbon emissions should be scaled back. About 75% of Americans support regulating carbon dioxide, while, and this is still the Times, in every, every congressional district, every congressional district, a majority of adults supports limiting carbon dioxide emissions. From existing coal fired power plants. This is an encouraging change from just seven years earlier when Americans felt that climate change ranked dead last out of 21 issues as a domestic governmental priority. Today's paper, by the way, I don't know if you saw it, there's a new study that says the last five years have been the hottest five years ever recorded, in the last decade has been the hottest decade ever recorded. That, that's only one study, but I, more studies are coming, and I think by and large they'll say roughly the same thing. The climate movement has done a good job of persuading the people, but unprecedented amounts of cash have been raised to combat it politically. This has come from the coalition Ted Rossack warned us of a decade ago. The corporate elite the well-funded neoconservative intelligentsia and the fundamentalist churches. This is the same coalition that helped elect Trump in 2016. But there are signs that, among the churches at least, their opposition to climate measures may be diminishing. At present, the political system is still in the clutches of the well-funded climate change counter-movement funded chiefly by greedy fossil fuel interests like the Koch brothers and Exxon. According to the Scientific American, the counter-movement's foundations funneled 558 million to almost 100 climate denial organizations from 2003 to 2010. And Trump's electoral campaign was chiefly funded by climate change deniers Robert Mercer and his daughter, Rebecca, who spent more than $16 to support his candidacy and his inauguration. The most serious war being fought today in American politics is not the fighting right now between Democrats and Republicans in Congress. It's this war on science that has been waged for decades between searchers for truth on the one hand— and American super-wealth, both personal and corporate, on the other. Here the issue is not whether science will win, but when. As Milton wrote long ago in Areopagitica, whoever knew truth put to the worse in a free and open encounter. The social movement that won against DDT and the tobacco industry will eventually force an energy revolution as well. It's much less clear whether these changes will occur in time to preserve anything like the climate we're accustomed to. Many who abstractly endorse the need for climate measures, especially politicians, will recoil when it comes to seriously raising the price of gas. But the dedicated social movement for change is still with us. Let us hope that the need to deal with our climate will in time produce a consensus through compromise, one that will diminish and replace the dissensus and political jousting that have led to Trump and his policies. Let us hope also that this trend will be reinforced, as Ted Roszak predicted, by the growth of this consensus in the world as a whole and not just here in America. I expect the energy for that reorientation to come primarily from younger people, but perhaps they will be joined by those of us who can remember the great satisfaction that can come from participating in what Gandhi and later Martin Luther King called satyagraha or truth force, the excitement of working in solidarity for a more decent world. America, of course, has many grave problems and there is no panacea for any of them, but the issue of climate is so grave that its solution must deal with other grave problems as well. One is the absurd vulnerability of our political processes to the influence of unprincipled money, a scandal which favors the election of unprincipled cynics to a Congress that has become what the late political scientist Chalmers Johnson called a forum of special interests. And this unprincipled money comes in large part from the disparity of wealth in our country. We are in a new Gilded Age, as much a threat to democracy today as the first Gilded Age was in the late 1800s until it was partially addressed by the income tax and other progressive reforms under both Theodore and then Franklin Roosevelt. Another major related problem is that of America's bloated defense budget. This is now an international as well as a domestic threat to stability, as resources needed to promote a healthier world order and domestic tranquility Are instead diverted into ill thought interventions and arms sales that are counterproductive. I wrote this, by the way, before the crisis that we've just been through in the last three or four days. Dealing with climate to be successful will necessitate a less militaristic approach to global problems. Let me begin, let me return to where I began. I believe that the hatred so widespread in contemporary America arises from fears for this country that are wildly exaggerated. I myself detest and fear the militaristic policies of this country, but not the country itself. Let us all expand our vision to be both more conservative, to help preserve this country's vital respect for decency and law, and also more radical to support the big changes needed for addressing our most oppressing problems. In short, let us, in the spirit of Hannah Arendt and Jonathan Schell, focus less on the divisive issues that Congress is handling and more on our own ability to promote the potentially unifying issues that Congress should be handling. I am 90, my politics were shaped in the 1960s, and deep in my heart I do believe we shall overcome someday. Thank you very much. So, George, will you handle the questions or shall I?
1: I'll, I'll, I'll bring the mic to whoever would like to ask the questions. But before that, I'd like to remind our radio and online audiences that they're listening to Peter Dale Scott um, speaking about uh, radical conservatism and what, what's needed in America from his perspective as a, a nonagenarian, a right?
2: And a Canadian.
1: And a Canadian, <laughs> <laughs> which, which allows him to see America as exceptional. So, questions? It allows
2: me to say good things about America that not many people of my, among my friends are willing to do
1: See. that. Uh, by the way, I should have mentioned that, that David, uh, who is here, David Tellup will be speaking next week, uh, just one week from tonight. Oh, thank you.
3: Peter, uh, your talk was a tonic. We're so fearful and angry these days. So, thank you for your, opti- <laughs> your optimism, um, and uh, it's very uh, good to start the new year with. But I I want to challenge you on one point. It seems that America uh, is up against such structural problems now, Uh, the oligarchy that runs our country, not just Trump and so on. And these structural uh, problems are being addressed in a very forceful way, of course, by Bernie Sanders, Uh, probably better than anyone else in the Democratic race. His campaign, of course, is fueled by – he's a very kind of um, genial fellow in many ways, very upbeat guy, Uh, not very personal in his attacks on other uh, people in the race, but yet there's a lot of anger in his movement, obviously. The, a lot of Bernie followers are, are very angry and want to have radical change in this country. And they think of Joe Biden, who's sounding like you kind of, you know, we can all get along. <laughs> let's come together. Right, well, you gotcha.
2: know.
3: <laughs> he, Joe Biden is preaching a unity, a kind of politics of unity that he can reach across the aisle, work with Republicans. Whereas, you know, Obama presidency and Biden's uh, co-presidency didn't really pan out that way. Uh, he was again and again kicked in the teeth by the Republicans and uh, Mitch McConnell. So, how do you like want to position yourself politically these days, it, knowing that you know the forces for radical change are motivated in some ways by great anger and fury, and the Joe Biden sort of more corporate Democratic element is motivated more by this uh, plea for unity.
2: Well, I think <clears throat> that uh, I, I have to say. I, I find myself agreeing with what you said, and I certainly there's no ambiguity in my mind that we're we're not in our presence set up in Washington in a position to make anything constructive happen, and that was the great tragedy of the Obama administration. He wanted to achieve consensus, but you take two sides to get consensus, and there. There weren't two sides interested in consensus. The biggest problem in our country right now, I think, is the one you're referring to, is the strength of the oligarchy, their control over the political process. Money controls everything. We're going to have primaries in which various people will run against each other. But only those people are going to run run in those primaries who or get anywhere in those primaries who've already been successful in the up-down primary of money. And even the, the Democratic Party has institutionalized this. You have to have earned a certain amount of money to be take part in the debates. This is terribly wrong, and it it is going to take an enormous change. And again, if you don't think historically, you might say... Well, we're done for. You'll never be able to deal with that. But let's look at the history of disparity of wealth, which is the problem we're talking about. From the American Revolution, let me see if I get this right. Um, no, it, it, it from the American Revolution to the first Gilded Age to let's say this, the 1870s after the Civil War. Uh, 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 well, no, I should say to 1900 that the disparity of wealth in this country was increasing. It was, you know, jagged but steadily going up, just like the stock market right now. And then with the progressive reforms in the first decade of the twentieth century, it started going down. And people you know, you can read the graphs differently. Some people say it went down till about nineteen seventy. I like the – it's very neat for me to think it went down until about 1980, which was when Reagan came in with the Reagan Revolution, and he defeated the Patco strike and essentially uh, gutted the, uh, the trade union movement. It was never the same afterwards. And so instead of the, um, the disparity of wealth diminishing, it started going back up again. And it's extraordinary, you know. Often you you just get charts showing you what's happened to the the relationship between the one percent and the uh, and everybody else. But if you do it on the point the point one percent of the one percent, you can't graph it because it's such an asymptotic curve in increase of wealth, it doesn't really fit in a chart. And I think we have now three multi billionaires. Who own as much collect the between the three of them as the bottom half of america i mean this is this is obscene and it's intolerable, and democracy obviously cannot work this way well then if democracy cannot work, are we doomed? That was what um Kevin Phillips worried about in one of his books that maybe we've gone past the point of no return. I can only say that. American history is one of crisis and resolution, disruption and resolution, and it's always happened before, and I've only one choice, which is to believe it can happen again, whether I'll be proven right or wrong. I, I'm still going to stick with that with with that belief. Now, what that means in practical terms, um, I think I I wish that Biden and Bernie Sanders could spend a long weekend together because each of them I think would be be better off if they were sounding a bit more like the other one <laughs> because uh, I think I think Sanders has a, a reason I mean I'm I'm not really here to talk politics but I think the what what stymies a great many democrats is that Sanders is in a reasonable position to win the Democratic nomination, but of the two, Biden, I'm sure, is in a better chance to win the election. So I wish those two would get more on the same page with a with a kind of vision that reflected both the conservatism
0: and the radicalism. Next question. Thank you for your lecture. Um, I am a high school teacher, and I am able to see the hope that you're addressing in my own students. Um, It's hard for me to see it personally, but I, I, I see it in them. And I think my question is to get back to, you know, you're talking about change from the bottom up. How do we, in the face of so many obstacles, how do we get back to that? Because I feel like in the sixties, people were united around common causes and they were less fragmented. I feel like today there's so many causes that are getting people um, that are catalyzing people to change. It's hard to get a mass, you know, critical mass of people. So I guess that's my one question. The other question is how do we, or how can we get people to start talking to one another? You were talking about earlier, you know, consensus and, and when both, sides can sometimes be so extreme. I mean, how do you get back into that? Because I think that is ultimately what will start our healing process, which, you know, as you mentioned, and I agree with.
2: Well, you're raising the, you know, what many people say about identity politics, that in dealing with particular issues, we've destroyed the kind of collective energy that was inspiring what we called the movement back in the 60s. Um, well, the, the, the first thing I would say is that climate change, I think, does unite everybody. And I think more and more people are going to say, I, I have these other things I'm concerned about, but I have going to, we have to fight for climate change, and that means we also have to fight to do something to reduce the power of money over the political process because it's only money that is stopping us from, from doing things. Well, it's not only money. I'm afraid it is, in a way, democracy because, I mean, if you ask the American people right now, Obama faced this thing. I mean, he, uh, fracking started under Obama, and a lot of us said fracking is bad, and when the, uh, Oklahoma started to tremble and have serious earthquakes, it became obvious that there are bad sides of, to for, to fracking. But Obama wouldn't really fight fracking. Why not? Because if you cut off this new supply of energy, and energy prices would rise, and no politician wants that. Nobody wants to be like Jimmy Carter was in 1980 with people lined up at the gas stations. So, um, you know, somebody can sound wonderful about climate change until you say, okay, how much are we going to... Look at Macron in France, for example. It's, uh, it's very difficult... And it's only going to take a sense of urgency. But the urgency is there. It really is an urgent crisis. And then um, I could go on and on about identity politics. But I think the overriding issue is that there is this issue. It is going to unite people and is going to have to be dealt with. And I do believe will be dealt with. Whether it will be dealt with in time is something else. But the movement is there. By the way, that's one other thing I wanted to say. It's not so much uh, inspiring people to do something. The whole point of my talk is that the social energy is there in America. It is always there, and it's a question of finding the right outlet. So uh, it's not as, from that point of view, not as gloomy as it it might look.
4: Well, this is is one on um, money and oil, and uh, oil is worth more to the human race in the ground than it is taken out, and that's especially true. Well, in Canada, in, in terms of carbon and tar sands, yes. is 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 crazy, crazy to develop at this point? You know when you have oil in Saudi Arabia that is uh is coming up and and if you just sit there and you say okay why can't we just revalue <laughs> you know so that um the money is only a reflection of value i mean money doesn't have any value of its own and um i think our institutions actually can process a revaluing of resources, so that instead of you know the the wealthy people who who might own a lot of oil, I mean that just becomes worthless, and um, you know our economic institutions can do that, can't they? Mm-hmm. To uh, to revalue um, various economic prospects and. Um, and just recognize real things as opposed to these imaginary constructs. You
2: know, if you take a um, an overview, which I can, sitting in this high chair, um, <laughs> uh, yes, I, we agree with you. But of course, from the point of view of stockholders in Exxon, they they're not interested in the oil that's in the ground except as you know reserves. They uh, they want it to be used. The whole strategy of the oil companies, they know and they accept that there has to be a, 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 an energy revolution. They just want to delay it until they can get a little bit more out of the ground. <laughs> and uh, I'm reading now Rachel Maddow's very readable book. Um, what's it, Blowout? I'm, uh, I think that's it. And uh, the, the behavior of Rex Tillerson I mean, it's uh, it, the the real influence of Putin in American politics. I think came much more through Rex Tillerson than it came through Trump, uh, because uh, Exxon has its eye on its billion-dollar. The largest oil deal ever made was the one signed between Exxon and Rosneft to develop the resources in Siberia, and that was. Uh, stopped by uh, the breakdown in 2014 with uh, with um, Putin invading Crimea and uh, uh, Obama imposing the sanctions and the sanctions were imposed on specifically a list of Russians including a man called Sechin who just happened to be the head of of Rosneft <laughs> and uh, in the next month, Rex Tillerson signed eight agreements with Setchen, even though he was on the embargoed list of people to be avoided by Americans. Um, so that's the kind of reality that we're fighting with. And it, it's very... I mean, look at Canada. I agree with you. Those t- toxic... I'm a bird watcher. They, they, the, the, the tar sands are so toxic that they have to have bells and cannons shooting off all the time to prevent birds from landing there because they'll die immediately if they land there. And yet I've talked to uh, Mrs. May, who's the head of the Canadian Green Party, and she's all against the pipeline. Yes, and the, Justin Trudeau was supposed to be green. He was supposed to be one of the elected politicians with the most progressive agenda until it came to uh, the pipeline... And the pipeline company that was going to get it out and ship it to Japan went bankrupt. Hooray, we should all say, except that Trudeau jumped in and nationalized it to keep it going. He's, he had also promised to respect Indian native Canadian rights, and he's violating them by expanding this pipeline through their territories. And the Green Party is against the pipeline... Not against the tar sands. I had a long conversation with them. I kept talking about tar sands. She kept talking about oil sands because she wants to win in Alberta, which is the main source of income is from the sands. So it. I mean, we're dealing with very, very, very intractable sources here, and the only. I keep coming back to the same thing. Is the, on the other side is the intractable reality that we have to deal with these forces, or the world as we know it is going to cease to exist. So in a way, uh, this is not the first time in history that a desperate situation at the same time is uh, provides a solution. I think there's a, a line from the German pold, poet Herder, and I wonder if... If I'm on this platform, can remember my German. Auch. Where there is danger, is also what can save us. That fits very well, I think, the present situation. the The climate crisis is really dangerous, and the fact that it is so really dangerous may be what will allow us to blunder our way out of this crisis.
1: I think what you said before, too, is, is really uh, relevant. You said that, that, you know, that they just want to get as much out of the ground as possible um, because the technology for alternative energies are all in p- place or, or have been developed um, in many, many different ways. And I've worked on those uh, deals myself uh, decades ago already. But the price point is too high. And so as soon as the price point gets, too, gets, it gets closer or starts to pass it by, those technologies will be brought in. The question is how to politically make it happen faster. But the, the fact that we can do it is extremely you know, important.
2: I could add to that yeah. either the price of alternative energy comes down or the price of, oil of, goes up. of fossil fuels goes up. And, right. of course, it is going up. Yeah, That was the, the tragedy of fracking. That we, we were at the point where everyone agreed we had to do something, <laughs> and then along came fracking and said, oh, no, cheap natural gas, and it's climate-friendly because natural gas is a lot better than diesel and these other forms of fossil fuel. One more question?
1: Uh, yes, a great talk. Thank you so much, sir. Uh, one, one, another very unique aspect of America, in my opinion, is our federal system. And as a Californian, I find myself always visiting swing states in election years because it doesn't really make any difference what I do here. I toy with the idea of moving to Wyoming (laughs) because there I could probably run for Senate on the Democratic ticket. So could you comment on any insights as to this particular unique aspect we have You know, this includes concepts like two senators for states and the Electoral College and all that. It's constitutional. Thank you.
2: Yeah, I think if this solution – if we do find a solution to this crisis, and I say I believe eventually we will, we're going to have to recognize – that our political system is very creaky. I mean, but the, that the Democrats have to fight their first primary in Iowa where there are almost no blacks, mm-hmm. you know, it, 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 it makes no sense at all. Yet the primary system was brought in because the old system before primaries was even worse. Uh, and in the whole global situation, this this whole system of nation-states... It goes back to the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648, and really, it was it was uh, given a, a spurt of energy by uh, colonialism and then decolonization, as they called it. So Though that was a kind of a, a kind of a papering over of the situation, um, so that you have Exxon. Uh, which even says proudly, we're not a U.S. corporation, we're a multinational U.S. interests, are not our interests, and they deal with a country like Equatorial Guinea, and they prefer to deal with a dictator because they only have to pay off one person. So the the global political system is part of the problem, and I think that if we get a solution... It it will involve a revamping of our political processes, both domestically in the United States and in the world as as a whole. Uh, We we cannot go on with a United Nations that passes resolutions and then all these different states that are being bought— bought off by multi, I, I don't want to say Exxon all the time. There are other, other terrible uh, corporations too. It's partly because I'm just reading Ma- Rachel Maddow right now, and she's very, very fixated on Exxon. As I must say, in my own books, I have been too. Um, so uh, yes, we, there's a lot that has to change. And in the And I I don't want to go on too much in that vein because I may get you depressed again. But (laughs) (laughs) The problems are real, but the crisis is real, and we're going to have to count on the urgency of the crisis to bring the solution to the problems. Thank you.
1: And so ends another event of the Commonwealth Club in its 117th year of Enlightened Discussion.